0: Welcome to Beer and a Movie, a podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity: beer and movies. Sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. My name is Joe Hilliard. I am only one of three. I'm joined, of course, by Carlos Cooper. And Dave Gurney. And as is our tradition, if you're a first-time listener, we're gonna open a beer, talk about a movie. And then repeat. Although today we're throwing ourselves a twist, there is so much movie news since the last time we recorded that we wanted to talk about a few things. So we're going to have a movie news beer, and it's a beer I had. I bought, a, picked up a four pack of this guy's. It's from a, a brewery called True Vine Brewing Company out of Tyler, Texas. That's halfway, but about halfway between Dallas and Louisiana. Uh, it's an awesome part of Texas. But this, uh, the it was the. Um, can art that got me on this one, guys. And double IPA, Daddy's Juice Box IPA. It's a double. They call it a, um, it's brewed with Simcoe, Citra, and Mosaic hops. And it's clocking in at, I've lost it. Where did it go? Where did it go? It's on the side there. 8.5. 8.5. So we're off to a good start. I I asked that we drink this after I tried my first one.
1: For those of you unfamiliar with Tyler, Texas, you can refer back to episode 53, which was our Richard Linkletter episode in which we discussed a film called Bernie starring Jack Black, which takes place in Carthage, Texas, a very similar part of the state in East Texas
0: uh can art got me uh so yeah i had i got (laughs) hold on hold here it is i got my four pack home i promptly drank one i have a very strong opinion on this beer and i asked y'all if we could do it on the show and usually the answer to that question no matter who asks is yes
1: yes that is correct it is uh you say beer podcast always a yes even there's going to be a surprising uh beer coming Soon, that if you listen to this podcast, will be surprised that I, I said yes to. Probably the only exception that you would think. Um, but it's happening.
0: So well, hold on I, to I, your I, pants, listeners. I love a good surprise. And we have talked, it's woven throughout the last, you know, quarantine, stay at home episodes that we've done about how is this whole thing going to affect the movie business? What's the movie business going to look like on the other side? When there's a hard stop, and interruption on the way that movie theaters can earn an income. And some big, big news in that talk came out this week. I guess Universal released, uh, last week we watched The Hunt. It went to theaters for a bad, bad weekend, then theaters closed down, then they fast-tracked it into video-on-demand. Well I guess Universal did the same with a movie I didn't even we didn't even get a blip on my radar David maybe at your house Trolls World Tour this was a sequel to a Trolls movie Yeah I think I even
2: mentioned it on the podcast at some point briefly just to say that I had I had rented that but yes the the, the family film that was planned to be released in theaters they chose to allow uh vi- video on demand folks like myself to uh to rent it for an, a premium price the Twenty-dollar price tag that we talked about with the hunt—it was the same there with the uh, Trolls World Tour.
0: Well, Universal's CEO, large figure, said uh, with the success of the video on demand in the future, we're going to look. It was a vague comment, but we're going to look at uh, you know a dual rollout theater and video on demand since it was such a profitable exercise for us. The movie had made a lot, a lot of money, and AMC, and we have an AMC in our town. They shot back with a – well, due to that comment and due to the notion that that window is going to be closing on us, that window that they require, the window of theatrical first release, uh, if you're shutting that on us in any fashion – you're never going to show another Universal film in AMC theaters again, and then the conversation kind of escalated from there.
2: I believe Regal came out and said basically the same thing. Is, is is that right? So I think they're they're they've at least been joined by one other, and I think there is some real concern over what does this mean for the future of exhibition as a business model, you know, theatrical exhibition as a business model for these various chains, especially that sort of rely on those huge blockbusters. Uh, You know, it's interesting. I haven't heard Alamo or smaller chains griping about it as much, but in part, they're more creative when it comes to their programming already. And they do lots of films that are available on rental because they know that some of their clientele are just excited to go see movies. We've talked about this many times podcast. You know, I think those kind of theater chains or or even, you know, independent uh, spaces won't suffer as much. But, you know, are we looking at a point where these megaplex chains that are catering to those big summer blockbuster type crowds, is there potentially a going to be a fallout here from this? Transition that we're going through that uh, that may me, makes them obsolete that that they aren't really relevant. I mean, I guess they, they're taking these protective measures. Will that be enough? I don't know.
1: I mean, it is a interesting bit of business. All like jokes about remc aside, um, but really, and you know, I I don't know if I've said this on the podcast for sure or not, but I feel like I've been talking about this for a while. Partly due to my particular industry that I personally like make my money from, uh, make my living from, but really, with all of the technology and all of the accessibility of content, information, various art and various mediums, um, it is up to the proprietors of said content in this new rapidly evolving digital age to keep up with the technology and to adapt their business model or practices or you know offerings or whatever it is that the case may be accordingly because that's I mean it's a thing that happens it's happening a lot faster than it ever has before which is you know um startling for some and is a you know a battle for some but ultimately like You know, technology has phased out different business models before, different practices. Uh, has evolved consumer habits in a way that has led to the detriment of certain industries. Um, But at the end of the day, you have to adapt for what the consumer wants. And I think that this could potentially be a big blow for some of the, like, you know, like large, expansive corporate theaters like AMC or Regal. Um, But I don't think any... Place Like the draft house is going anywhere because of this. I mean, their business model is already kind of niche. And they do show some of those movies. Obviously, we lament about it from time to time that, you know, Star Wars is taking up four of the seven theaters. And so we didn't get, you know, a movie that was probably Oscar nominated or whatever. But because of all of the movie parties and specialty screenings and the food and drink and all of the experiential kind of things that you can't get at home in the same way. Like, look, I could try to make loaded fries at home. It's not going to taste like Alamo Drafthouse loaded fries. You, believe, you better believe that. And, like, that is one of the things that I'm like, I, I want that. I want a Mexican vanilla shake. I want a good beer. And I want fucking truffle butter, Parmesan popcorn. And I want to watch a good movie while doing it. And the Draft House is a place that I can do that. I could try to do it at home. It's more work for me. It's more thought of my grocery trips. I mean, you know, there's a lot. So it's things Uh, like that where, like, those types of theaters that are creating an experience out of going to the movies. And, like, uh, it's like you know, it's like going out to eat. Could you make spaghetti and meatballs at your house? You should be able to. If not, you got some, you know, self-reflection to take part in because that's a pretty easy thing to make. But you still (laughs) go to, you know, Frank's Spaghetti House or you go to Bolino's or you go to wherever because it's the whole experience of going out to eat and being waited on and stuff. And so overall, the business is adapting. This isn't the first time that something has been put on VOD quickly after its theatrical release or in the same succession or whatever. So the theaters need to figure out a way to not suck and get people to want to go there.
0: It just distills the business decisions of both sides down to a single conversation that's playing out right now, and that is we, the theaters, have got leverage over you studios because of the gross that you make specifically in our arena you do make a separate gross on the VOD and DVD arena. Well, now Universal is saying we're not so sure that, the, that the, maybe the smaller films that sometimes get to the theater that you say, that's a real niche audience. Maybe those just go straight to video now, and it upends the, the, the types of movies that are at theaters and the notion that unless they can work their things out, some of Universal releases that we're looking forward to May not make it to all AMC theaters. They're willing to make that gamble. That's the fascinating part to me, the gamble that both sides are making at this point in the juncture.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think it's more of a gamble on the theater side because, I mean, at least in this case, and granted, like Universal needs to take a real long, hard look at themselves and think about all of the factors that have made this video on demand release so successful. You know, you've got a quarantine happening, you've got Families families at home looking to like entertain their kids and keep them docile and focused on something. Um, So, in a different, you know, six months ago, when everyone was free to go about their business and do whatever they want, would this have still been as successful? That's something Universal needs to really think about if they're going to play this game of chicken with the theaters.
2: It's true. It'll it'll be interesting to see what they're saying when when things do return closer to what they had been before at least in terms of people's ability to go out freely and and feeling comfortable going into spaces and packing in you know here in texas we actually as of this past friday um movie theaters here have the option of reopening and in our local market none have there's at least one small regional chain up in san antonio that has opened it'll be interesting to see how these smaller chains that are maybe trying it out are going to, if audiences are going to come back, how those audiences will, will come back, um, but I think it's going to take a while to really know what the full fallout is.
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, but even though the distribution model that we're used to as far as movies and things go is very uncertain, I'll tell you one thing that I am certain of, and it is that this daddy's juice box is not good. <laughs>
2: Yeah, this is it's it's (laughs) it's cloying, sweet, it's malty. It's uh, you know, there's an old version of me in my palate that would have thought something like this was okay. This is a double IPA. I mean, this is what you're getting, what you signed up for. I think if something calls itself a double IPA, expect this huge malt bomb. And I think we're just we've talked about this now. We're spoiled. Our palates have been uh shifted to where we want things to be more citrusy and aromatic and sort of effervescent this this is none of those things this this weighs me down
1: as the kids would say this ain't it chief
0: (laughs) yeah i when i had that one i promptly texted you that i've had the worst beer i've had all year and can we do this on the show and it's not just to rub their nose in it but it's really to me i mean this all come out big as as awesome as Bernie is, the movie that was t- that was took place in Tyler, Texas.
1: Uh, Carthage, this, but close to Tyler.
0: This is not. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it. I'm gonna call it the same. I don't like that. No. Uh, point taken. Not good. Uh, this is the worst beer I've ever had on this show, and we've done eighty something episodes. I think this is I'm eighty-eight. Ch- uh, you yeah. you're you're definitely forgetting one beer, at least. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah, but that was an accidentally spoiled beer that we knew was going to taste like garbage out of the bag. I don't this know. Is a mar- this is a marketed beer that I'm supposed to take home and enjoy, and there's nothing enjoyable about this Daddy's Juice, Juice Box.
2: Well, I, I... Like, you know, me always trying to see the silver lining here, I believe there are double IPA drinkers out there, people who still love that old... Now now I'm saying like five-year-old approach to doing that, who probably still love this stuff. Just me personally, it's my, my palate's gotten so far from it that, I, that it's not pleasant anymore.
0: Well, our listeners last week know that we were going to tackle Hulu. I signed up for Hulu to discuss two films, female-led, recent releases that are on Hulu. And we are going to talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a movie all of us were looking for. But it's time to open another beer, and I brought this one to the table, too, Listeners know that Dallas's Four Corners Brewings, El Chingon, is my Sahara. (laughs) Now this, it's a a 7.8% American IPA. It's $10.99 a six-pack at my grocery store, which is two streets from my house. That grocery store has very limited selection. And if I see something different or new that they're trying to get in there, I get it. But if not, El Chingon to charlotte to carlos's chagrin to carlos's mass ridicule for months and months and months is my my middle light if you will my my everyday beer that i pick up a six pack of when i travel to the grocery store so carlos i'm bringing this to us to taste we know you hate it but please let's remove all prejudice i know you have the power
1: um well actually um not to disappoint but this is the worst beer I've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> oh,
0: no, no, don't le- don't
1: don't don't show your cards at the end. I couldn't hold it in. I took one sip oh. and I was like, "Oh god." Anyway, I don't-
0: I uh, wanted to get to a movie. I, I, yeah, no, no. We'll get to the movie enjoy it. Let it warm up a little bit. It's going to change your heart. Okay, I'm going to try to chug it as fast as I can.
1: Um, but yeah, no. So to we are tackling Hulu. But if but if you've been a longtime listener of this podcast, then you probably heard a past episode we did um, titled "Movies We Missed in Theaters," and this is also another edition of "Movies We Missed in Theaters" because both of the uh, both movies we're doing today are uh, distributed by Neon Films, which is owned by the same company, Draft House, Alamo Draft House. So we got trailers uh, for both selections today, including Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but never actually got the film here in our hometown. I know it played a lot of other places and at least some kind of limited engagement, but... Um, so yeah, this is definitely another one of those types of episodes and a uh, particular format that I enjoy a great deal um, because there definitely are a lot of things that either um, I didn't get time to go and see or that didn't make it here that I wish would have and that I was really interested in. And Portrait of a Lady on Fire was definitely one of those movies. It's um, to just give a quick little overview. It is a French film. Um And it is about a woman who is sent uh, to paint another woman um, who is to be married to a man from Milan, um, but she won't pose for her portrait. She's driven all the other painters crazy. And these two women form a connection um, through this kind of relationship. Um, The woman whose portrait is to be painted uh, is um, she's told that the painter uh, is there to uh, accompany accompany her on walks after uh, her sister has thrown herself off a cliff. Um, and that is the premise of the film. This isn't like a super plot-heavy film. Um, it's very visual. It's very moody and uh, more about the tone and... Um, uh, Putting you in this world—it's a period piece. Um, but now that I've kind of laid out the general synopsis of it, I'm curious um, what you guys thought about it.
2: I thought this film was—I'm—I'm—why I'm, am I hesitating? Fucking fantastic! <laughs> I was—I was about to like. Do we swear on the podcast? Of course, we, 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 we do. Drop these f this one deserves it, um, because I need to be emphatic about how much I love this film. Uh, I feel only a tiny bit robbed by not seeing it on the big screen. Carlos was saying that this is a very visual film, and I think it's a film, you know, it's it's not a blockbuster. It's, it's not an action-packed that doesn't have CGI, but just the landscape, uh, th- photography, cinematography here, um, even the interior. There's the the lighting design of, of the piece, like very naturalistic lighting, and a lot of these sort of darker. Sh- I mean, it was just beautiful, luxurious, sumptuous kind of viewing experience, and you're seeing this you know tragic love story kind of play out over um, over top this. I, I mean, I loved it. I loved the uh, the leads. I, lo- I loved the, the two main actors. Um, I, thought, I thought they were wonderful. I thought they did amazing uh, work with just their facial expressions, which is nice because it was a French film. So, I mean, I'm not getting the full benefit of their delivery with their dialogue. Yeah. But, um, you know, just the, the way that they could kind of express themselves to each other through glances, through the, uh, you know, little smirks they had. Like, it was just a masterclass in acting cinematography coming together to convey this very powerful story of, uh, like I said, a tragic love that can't quite be seen. But I think actually, and I, I won't, uh, I'll kind of save it for maybe a little bit later, uh, you know, cause I love what this film does in its ending as well. I think it really tells this interesting story that like Carlos said, isn't driven so much by nuance and plot or, or a uh, complexity of plot. I think there's a lot of nuance. There's not a lot of complexity. Um, because uh, you know, like I said you're just building it on these characters that are so understandable given their historical period what kind of s- stresses they'd be under, tensions, restrictions and then seeing it kind of play out uh, against this beautiful backdrop I, I loved it. I'll-, I'll be surprised if you guys both didn't really love this film but uh, but please, surprise me, shock me
0: Joe, well, what did not, you think? I'm not as on fire for it as you are David uh, <laughs> Bada bing, bada boom. I, I do agree with a lot of what you said. My biggest distraction, though, and, and with all of these period dramas and series that are on all the different streaming networks right now, they're very popular, you can kind of tell where certain series or movies have budget issues. And I think that... Uh, th- these kinds of things are going to require a, a, a set design budget and a costume budget and a cinematography budget to really pull it off. There were some stunning moments of cinematography. I won't argue with uh, with that, but I will say that sometimes and not all the time, especially on indoor shots with a lot of lighting, I just got the sh- this, the, the notion of they were using a low-budget camera right here or the lack of a film wash filter or something That broke away from some of the stunning outdoor scenes it took me out of the movie some of the set dressing but it's a pretty small complaint it just doesn't present itself as i hate to use this term oscar caliber all of the time when it comes to the look of the movie that was distracting to me but the 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 love story yeah i was all on board for that
1: i i didn't have that same experience i mean i assume Um, that this was shot digitally, and sometimes low-light shooting can get kind of grainy, um, which you just kind of expect. Um, And so, I mean, I don't know. I never really had those kinds of hang-ups. What I did really like is, you know, a lot of what David said, the tone, the nuance of the uh, character's expressions to, you know, convey different uh moods and different subtleties about their growing relationship. I like that nothing physical ever had to happen between them in order for us to know that they clearly had, you know, taken their relationship to the next level. And then, of course, they do at some point, you know, um, act upon that. But them acting on it wasn't what signaled to the audience something was going on, which is like a classic like, pitfall of love stories in American filmmaking for the most part. I mean, there obviously are a lot of exceptions, but typically that's what an American filmmaker for a, you know, studio film, rom-com, or, you know, dramedy, or whatever kind of love story you're telling, that's how people will convey that they are in love, is that they, like, have sex or whatever, which isn't the case uh, in this. I also really like, you know, we have a a film that is totally carried on the backs of these two actresses and telling a love story from a different perspective that we're not usually um, used to. I mean, it's not like overly eroticized. Um, There's nothing like exploitative about like, you know, when they do act on their feelings or any of that kind of stuff. And not only that, but there is this use of You know Greek mythology, uh, recontextualized in a way that, like, you know, did you consider that? Did you consider that the woman might have more um, autonomy in this story? That she was the one to initiate some kind of action that led to this outcome for the man, which is not a way that Greek mythology is ever contextualized, typically, um, or any kind of you know, ancient literature for the most part. Like if it's a story about a man, it's totally told from the man's point of view. Even today, like any Michael Bay movie, I mean, come on, like, um, but the fact that they took something like that and it was a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern kind of situation, like, oh, what about this person whose, you know, point of view you hadn't really thought about before. Um, And I really liked that, that maybe, This woman who was being rescued from the underworld by, uh, I guess, her lover, husband, whatever the situation was, maybe she was the one that didn't want to go back with him to, like, Earth or whatever. And that she said something that would allow her to go back to where she was because it was peaceful. And that's, you know, she didn't – she's just not the object of some man's desire you know, to be done with how he, you know, pleases or whatever. And so all of those things I thought presented a really interesting approach and a much more compelling narrative. And it it also is interesting how far into the film that fable is introduced. Because it's not like something that happens at the outset. You're at least like halfway through before they start discussing this. But then it recontextualizes a lot of what you saw before and then informs a lot of what you see going forward. And it, it makes for a much more like active viewing experience. Like you as the audience are being asked something of yourself to like put in a little effort into your, you know, viewing of the film. It's not spoon feeding everything to you. So at the end of the day, there's a lot more for you to chew on as a viewer and, Um, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I also wish that I would have, uh, seen it in a theater. My one complaint is I was really hoping that we were going to get a live action kind of recreation of that painting in the beginning, the titular portrait of a lady on fire. I loved that painting, like when they showed it and they show it right up top and you get the title right up top. And I, I mean, I didn't. I thought there would be some kind of representation of that presented at some point, and I was really excited to see it. Um, I thought that that particular painting was very epic in scope, just beautiful, and I would I would hang it in my house if I could. Uh, but th- that would probably be my only complaint. Other than that, I thought it was excellent, loved it. Um, it's definitely not like ai am going to watch it all the time or whatever, you know, it's... Uh, a little denser and something maybe, you know, you revisit every now and then, but overall very little to complain about as far as this film is concerned for me.
2: I mean, it it demands your attention. It's not one that I'm going to just watch in the background at some point. I mean, you know, that said, I I thought it was beautiful. So I I guess I could have it on the background, but I'd want to watch it. I'd want to give it the intent, the attention I think it deserves. Um, a couple scenes that, that I just want to touch on that I really thought worked super well. I love the scene with them going to the gathering of the women around the bonfire with the singing, the chanting. I thought that was super cool. I, I like, I want a record of just that chanting music, <laughs> Which yeah. apparently they created for the, I actually looked that up because I was like, okay, is this like some sort of actual, but it wasn't something like a true traditional song that she had, that Celine Siama brought into the film. Um, it, instead is something that she kind of had uh, done, you know, made for the film for for the purpose. But I thought it was amazing. I thought it was a great musical scene in a film, very unlike most musical scenes you would see in films. I also I mentioned earlier the ending. I love, you know, again, this is a tragedy. These women can't stay together. They find love. They can't stay together. Like I said, you know, society at the time, the rules around there is no way that that would have worked. However, there are these you get to sort of learn about these moments where they do kind of well not reconnect but um the portrait artist right um mm-hmm. marianne is able to see uh heloise again right and that uh you know she sees her in a portrait in a in a museum or gallery or whatever um with a child but uh, but referencing the their relationship with the book that oh, she's holding God, right? that was so so Beautiful, beautiful, because, you know, earlier in the film, you've kind of planted the seed of, you know, she has her do a self-portrait of her lover there in the book for her. And so, like, keeping it open, you know, she's thinking of her. She's even signaling that through the paint. Love it. Well, yeah, because, um, and then
1: her- b- because the painter is able to take that image with her because she is a painter right. and she can sure. recreate from memory. But So there's that yeah. scene where, where Eloise says, well, I'll never have anything of you like i can't paint i can't do this like i'm just never right. going to see you again like and so yeah that self-portrait happens at a very at a specific page number in the book and she has it open in the portrait yeah. that yeah the painter sees and and then her at the concert. perfect
2: screenwriting. god damn sure. well and then her but then <laughs> that with the punctuation of her at the concert being seen from afar as she's listening to this piece of music vivaldi um that you know Marianne has played for her at the harpsichord earlier in the film and they've connected over this piece of music and you see her crying and very i mean it's a it's just a beautiful not hitting you over the head with it but totally giving you the emotional catharsis that you would want after seeing something like that. I just thought that was one of the best endings of a film that I've seen in a long time.
1: You don't just see her crying though. I mean, the ending is brutal in that it fixates on Eloise for a very long time with this like pretty intense piece of music playing over her for like several full minutes. Like it is a extended like zooming in close up of her and her mental state deteriorates as the music goes on and it just like it's a fucking gut punch at the end the way that that is
0: executed well i I can't tell you how glad I am that the two of you enjoyed it as much as you did and you know I trust you guys opinion for the most part uh we're about to get into a beer where I'm Suspect at the beginning, but I, I trust y'all's. <laughs> I trust opinions for the most part. So I'm going to give this. I'm going to give this a rewatch, and I'm going to look for the things that you enjoyed. <clears throat> I will say that my complaints are very personal. Clearly, a very subjective viewing that I had of the experience. I hope no one will uh, put the brakes on going to see a Portrait of a Lady on Fire. But what about Elching going? I'm going to go to you first, David, because you know you're the optimist and. I know you don't want like to shit on me as often as you can. <laughs> no. Uh, I, you know, I've had El Chingon many times
2: over the years. It's You know, when Four Corners came into our market a few years ago, um, it was something, and I used to, they had the gimmick of the... Whatever pull tops, what what do we call like those the things? The wide things? mouth
1: can, or the taps tab, can. Oh yeah, oh, the 360 yeah. can. The 360. They,
2: Stop that! They've they've gone to the more traditional, um, you know, tab cans that we have now. But
0: well, their their supplier stopped making them for okay. lack of profitability.
2: There you go. Yeah. So anyway, so that that novelty is kind of gone. I mean, I do think this to me is more drinkable than the daddy's juice box. I will definitely give it that. I think the hop profile of this beer is a more earthy kind of almost like dirty taste than I, than I'm typically looking for in an IPA these days but there was a time where I think I was more accustomed to these again I'm going to you know I I feel like I keep falling back on this there was an old approach to IPAs that american breweries were using for a good chunk of you know probably well over a decade that really came to define what american ipas were and i think this is more in league with that than the stuff that's happened in the last five years as we've gone more towards the juicier hazier um you know the easier drinking ipas essentially like there i remember when i was getting into craft beer years ago that was sort of a a joke that like oh you go to ipas if you just want to like be a bro who can, like, you know, tolerate IBUs that you can throw at me. Oh, this has 500 IBUs, dude, I'm going to crush it. You know, that kind of approach to IPA. Now, this I don't think is one of those extreme versions of that, but it's more in that league than it is any of the other IPAs we tend to have on the podcast. I will say, though, I've been drinking these things alongside each other. So I still had the daddies and El Chingon. And I and back and forth actually helps both of them. It, it kind of cuts, it cuts some of the sweetness. I think I'm going to do a cuvee in a moment. I just have a little of the daddies left. I'm going to pour it right in. But I do think that the hot profile on the El Chingon helps to balance the daddies in a weird way. So
0: Well, I uh, we look forward to that report. For me, I love the 7.8, the malty build. It's very malty to me, and I don't mind that We're at all. It's not nearly
2: as malty as the daddy's juice box. That's okay. for
0: goddamn sure. Uh, we can. Everybody, calm down. Everybody, okay? Uh, okay. So yeah. For, so for the price tag and the profile that I enjoy in an IPA, Ciel Chingo, and and, the, and that they have sold out, that you know they they've been bought out. I'm I'm monitoring it closely for lack of my the experience that I enjoy, and I will I will cut it loose if that occurs. All right, Carlos, give it to me.
1: I mean, you heard me say up top it's the worst beer that I've had on this podcast. Um, It's interesting. So it says 72 IBU on the can, um, which David just mentioned earlier. Throw as many IBUs at me as you can. It still says 360-degree pop top on the can, though, even though it does not have that anymore. Oh, that is Uh, funny. Which is funny. That
0: is funny. Okay, well, the conclusion. Well, hold
1: on. Before... uh, David said he was going to do a cuvee. I had already poured my cuvee and was waiting for the, um, head to subside and it is bad. (laughs) It's still not good. I don't care for it. Uh, this is a very difficult beer for me to finish in any context. Um, I, it's too much for me. It's too bitter. In fact, you know, David just mentioned, um, the traditional, uh, you know, big burst of craft beer approach when, you know, craft beer is really, really blowing up five, 10 years ago. This was the approach to an IPA. And I'll tell you what, when I was, I don't know, um, like 18 or something like that, a friend handed me a Sierra Nevada pale ale and I tried it and I said, this is terrible. I hate this. I don't think that I like beer. And then within the next year, I was stone cold sober after (laughs) it for like five years. I didn't drink another drop of alcohol for years and years and years because of it. Uh, not because of that, but I mean, that didn't help. You know, I definitely was like, well, I don't like this anyway, so I'm just not going to bother thinking about it anymore. Uh, I just, it's the overly bitter thing. It's just not, it's not good to me. I don't, care for it i still don't like sierra nevada pale ale really um i typically stray away from stone ipas because they're in the most of them are more in the traditional kind of west coast style it just it's really not my thing
0: Um, so the conclusion carlos taps out we roll together but joe solo runs dirty i don't know what you just said (laughs) 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 We'll be right back.
2: And we're back. All right. And uh, we have... Uh, as promised, another beer. Uh, third beer for this episode here in the second half. This is coming to us from the Brewing Project. Uh, they are out of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. This is their Puff Tart XL Imperial Sour. And I think they do different versions of this, but this one that we happen to get our hands on is the Raspberry Guava version they describe it as a malt beverage with raspberry guava and marshmallow flavor so we're going to go ahead and get some in our glasses it sure does pour pretty oh my god as soon as i cracked it marshmallow as soon as i cracked it along with raspberry
0: oh my god the that ras that raspberry is dense in the in the nose that is strong yeah Yeah.
2: and it's a beautiful beer look at that color oh my god
1: yeah, it looks it looks amazing.
2: Oh, th- this is one of those beers that I could just sit here, you know, uh, smelling the entire segment, and I'd probably be <laughs> happy. Such a good aroma! This is amazing. this This is dessert in a glass uh, territory.
1: Yeah, it does appear to be that way. I cannot wait uh, to taste it. Puff, but tart. I think it's definitely a beer that you would not want to make any kind of a set it'd be hard to describe without having drank the entire thing so we need to get into the movie now and give us some time to sit with this uh magnificent concoction um and so we're moving on to the second part of our hulu deep dive movies we missed in theaters um uh episode and in this particular case now this is one for me, that I very strongly remember seeing trailers for and then was very disappointed that we did not get in our theaters. And this is uh, 2018, uh, starring Natalie Portman. Uh, Vox Lux is the name of the film. And it is basically about um, a... well, Well, first I'll say what the trailers led me to believe when I saw them. And it's about a pop star in her early thirties who has had a very, uh, rough couple of years, you know, having some probably addiction kind of issues or whatever, and is trying to stage some kind of comeback. Now, the way that it is described is an unusual set of circumstances bring unex- unexpected success to a pop star, which I guess is not that much different. Um, it is directed by Brady Corbet, who was an actor uh, before becoming a director.
2: Corbet or Corbett? I don't, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I don't I'm asking. Know.
1: If I see E.T., I just automatically go to Corbet. Yeah, hey, you go with. Yeah. I uh, okay. just you know, I don't know. It could be Corbett. Um, I really don't know anything about this guy. He had a movie before this, I believe in 2016 that was adapted from a Jean-Paul Sartre story, um, that received incredible acclaim. Um, and then this was his follow-up in 2018. Uh, it also stars, uh, Jude Law as Celeste, the pop star, her name is Celeste. Uh, as her, I guess, manager, and Stacy Martin as her older sister, um, who we haven't talked about on the show, but it has been discussed that we may talk about it at some point. She was in *Nymphomaniac*, uh, the Lars von Trier um, two-part movie saga. She played the younger version of Charlie Ginsburg's character. And also, I believe she dated a guy that played in the band Yuck for a while. Um, I don't think they are together anymore. But when I first heard of her, I was like, oh, she was dating a guy that was in that band While when, when they recorded their self-titled album, which is a fantastic album if you haven't listened to it. Um, but that's the basic setup. Pop star, you know, things are kind of spiraling a little bit. Um, so... I don't know if either you guys have something you want to say to kick off the discussion, or um, if you want to just come out and say good or bad, yes or no. Uh,
0: well, I mean, there's so much more to the movie. Um, it's presented in three parts. There are title cards, Act 1, Act 2. And the first act is the the where this pop star that you've described comes from. And it turns out that, I mean, you're right, this is not what I expected at all in the film, Carlos. But now it's 17, 15 years prior she's in high school and uh, is the victim of or one of the victims of a school shooting that comes in out of nowhere, hard and graphic. Oh, yeah. And uh, you don't really know. Hold on. Where's Natalie Portman? You know, what, what's 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 going on? Yeah. Turns out this is the young Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman will play this character, a girl who... Tries to give some empathy to the shooter, and is shot and and recovers. She and her sister write a song that happens to be covered by a news organization. This would be pre-social media. Yeah. But she go she goes viral in as much as viral would have been back then, and uh, uh, attempts to with Jude Law her manager and a record producer turn that into a, a, a pop star money making opportunity. A career. Seen- yeah. Yeah, we see the evolution of her meeting with producers and cutting albums, and yeah. really setting it up for failure because does she have the gumption, the the talent, the the talent? I guess more than anything to actually be yeah to be a Britney Spears or a Lady Gaga or you know a Madonna. There you go.
1: Yeah, um, I totally forgot to mention narrated by William Defoe.
0: Right, your boyfriend from. The lighthouse. The lighthouse. Yeah, love him. Love him. Love David, what did what, David? What did you think? I mean, that's essentially the plot.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I went into it very similar to you, Carlos, where I remember seeing the trailer maybe even a couple times, really liking the look of it. I mean, I remember being kind of impressed by the the you know just the general look of it because a lot of the trailer, from what I remember, was shots of the concert and, or like her in the backstage area. And, and so it's got that like purple lighting. It's and the, all you know,
1: Natalie Portman.
2: Her,
1: yeah. the trailer. Right.
2: So, so it really felt like, Oh, it's, a, you know, going to be this kind of uh, you know, snapshot of a pop star in crisis. This could be kind of interesting. Natalie Portman, you know, I, I have a fair amount of respect for, I've, I've, I've liked her in a number of things over the years. Um, so going into it and not knowing that the first, half of the film, roughly, is really devoted to this kind of earlier moment in the pop star's life and how she came to be, you know, it's Genesis, right? Like the how she came to be this pop star, you know, and is touched off initially by this really abrupt, violent school shooting uh, scene that, that unfolds. It, it, yeah, it was, a, it was kind of a stunner for me where, you know, I put it on thinking, OK, this is a movie about an aging pop star. We're kind of just getting ready to sit down for the Watched something and didn't expect that out of the out of the gate. It totally floored us. Uh, you know, I watched this there and 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 so uh, lo- loved that. It pulled me right into it. Um, I, there was some stuff I knew about it in addition that made me really excited for it. Scott Walker, a musician who I have a lot of respect for, oh uh, he he did some of the you know instrumental score for the film, and and I think it's really effective. It has this really kind of troubling i mean as most of his music that he composed in his lifetime uh it has a very troubling kind of undercurrent to it it feels very upsetting and very a lot of unrest in there uh i loved seeing uh the the pop songs themselves i thought were pretty darn good and i know sia had a role in writing some of those for the film with, with with some other folks so I just thought, you know, I knew going into it, okay, the music is going to be something I might appreciate. And it definitely was, but I was not expecting to be as wowed by the storytelling as I was. I I loved the, the segmenting of it. I loved the showing this again, the Genesis, the birth of this kind of pop star, how that would come, how somebody who is just a regular average middle school, high school student, right? She was yeah, in she's eight like grade. 14. Yeah. They, um, you know how she would go from being just a you know anonymous you know eighth grader to being a huge pop star in a minute. Well, they and I think he did a good job setting up a plausible scenario for that to unfold. Uh, I loved the transition to Natalie Portman taking over the character. I love that they retained the actress to play her daughter, who would play her as a younger uh, woman. You know, in the earlier part of the film. Yeah, which I thought is- that was.
1: A- which is something the director had done and had been applauded for in his directorial debut, the movie right before this, the Jean-Paul Sartre yeah. ad- adaptation.
2: See, I haven't seen that. I haven't the, either. It felt, yeah. Um, so I, it, it just, it totally drew me in. I loved it. I thought that this was a really great look into the, you know, the the both the dark underbelly of this kind of pop stardom, but also like, there's some really touching moments in there between Natalie Portman and some of the other characters. There's some troubling ones. I mean, it's, it's not casting her as a villain, but it's certainly not putting her up on a pedestal. Like she is somebody to be, you know, just admired. And yet she's a very, um, she is a figure who you're kind of impressed by. Like she was able to pull herself in the midst of all this craziness that surrounded her life from the school shooting to her success as a pop star to then, you know, having to deal with being a mother at age, whatever, 14, 15, having to, I don't know, it was, it was an intense film, but it was a very watchable and enjoyable film in in its own way. I mean, aside from that violence at the beginning, which is pretty shocking, I was enjoying myself throughout most of the film, even where there were things that were kind of troubling going on.
0: Well, the intersection for me of the two storylines, the school shooting, which none of us expected, and then the pop star diva origin story and continuation into her later career because the final act of the film is a redemptive concert uh we have, we've neglected to mention that the second act of the film begins with another shooting that's attributed to the 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 pop star that that, that you know this this girl has now become yeah, the... but the intersection of those two storylines just do not connect for me. I'm really surprised, David, at how glowing you are. I mean, I, I do not buy for a moment Natalie Portman as any conceivable future version of the girl that we've been introduced to in the first act. In fact, to me, Natalie Portman and I and I did a little research. Uh, the film was originally going to be that that role was originally going to be played by um, oh my gosh, girl with the dragon tattoo. Rooney Mara. Thank you. Uh, that's who was originally signed on to do the role. And then, of course, we know how it works in Hollywood. It takes a while to get these projects going. And Natalie yeah. Portman came in and took over. I'm not saying that Rooney Mara would have been conceived much better. But A, she more closely resembles the first girl. Yeah. And B, she might have done it more nuanced. Natalie Portman, we're to believe, in the last few years has become the caricature of early Madonna in New York City, with the snapping New York uh, accent and well, she's so, much, Island. Yeah, so much Yes, so much sass—that the girl we met that becomes Natalie Portman—I I didn't buy that. That was an adult version of that story. It took me—it took me way, way out of the movie. Two different stories that were interesting that do not connect at all for me.
2: I am sorry to hear that. I think you're missing a great opportunity to enjoy a wonderful
0: performance. Maybe
2: maybe I'm in the
0: fantastic story.
2: Because to me, this I was so impressed by Natalie Portman. I love now to me, there's a huge chunk of this person's life that's chopped out, right? I mean yeah, that is true. age fourteen like becoming pregnant in a one night stand with this rock star guy. Who's basically who, in sun. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> to, to being, uh, you know, th- th- for our fans who know, they'll know. Th- th- and fr- from being that to being a 30 something mother of a 15, whatever, you know, close in age to what she was when we last saw her. Yeah. It's totally believable for me. Somebody who had the experience of being obscure nobody, eighth grader. In a school shooting, that parlays in a weird way into a pop star career. To think that she wouldn't be deeply impacted by that and changed, and that 15 years later she'd be a totally different kind of person—that I could go with. She could have been like a, a you know, a street dweller, uh, you know, person who's, you know, living behind dumpsters. I would have bought it. I mean, how could anybody come out of that not being radically changed? I mean, it was almost. To me, the idea of putting an actress who looks somewhat different in there, and she doesn't look all that different, but it kind of fits. It's like that would have that kind of deep impact on somebody where they would look different. They would be a different person coming out of the end of that process.
1: Um, So to Joe's point, I think that it's not like totally unwarranted that it's hard to buy Natalie Portman as the older version of it. But I think that there's like a very interesting thing that happens with the casting in this movie insofar as that – Almost everyone is British playing American except for Natalie Portman. Stacey Martin's British. Jude Law's British. The girl playing. Natalie Portman's younger self slash her daughter is British and I think where it gets kind of like disjointed is that the girl playing the young Celeste has a hard time hiding her British accent like it comes out every now and then and she doesn't have a very heavy New York accent and then when you get to Natalie Portman she's like fucking Staten Island through and through like her accent is heavy and
2: it's, but so, can't you just envision that Celeste like hanging out at uh, you know like weird parties and stuff oh, from for like sure. ages fifteen to eighteen, 12, oh, yeah. where she has a daughter? Like, yeah, no 100 percent.
1: Yeah, like, yeah. and so, and so, I, I don't, I don't think that the actual like writing or storytelling of it is the part where it gets kind of broken up. I think that it is just a little hard to track because of that because they sound so different. Um, and you know, she didn't have an accent before, and she does now. Even Kylie asked me, like, what is this accent supposed to be in? Um, so I do understand that to a certain extent. However, I also think that even if at first it's a little jarring and kind of daunting trying to track it, once you – and it it is conveyed, albeit kind of subtly and it's not, like, super, like, in your face, but it is conveyed in the film – that she went from being this hero that survived a school shooting and wrote this song to like, because she couldn't articulate her feelings and blew up and became the sensation. And then as soon as she's riding that high wave and she has become a bona fide pop star, she has a kid at a very young age and immediately becomes the like poster child for what not to do. Like the main thing you're not supposed to do is have a kid at 15 with somebody that you're not even like seriously involved with. And so from then on out, like, having gone from being put on this pedestal and being lauded and praised, she is immediately cast as the villain. And at that age to go from one extreme to the other in such a dramatic way has got to be traumatizing and so difficult to deal with, um, just on an emotional level. And so I think it makes total sense that she's this wreck of an adult. And I think it makes Joe go.
0: Well, I was just going to say it, the other big problem I have with the film is that Everyone Smiles at the End ending. You see in Act 2 the mess that is Natalie Portman's life. Yeah. The mess of a relationship we has, she has with her sister and her daughter. And, and the, the mental breakdown that she has prior to this big the epilogue, the concert, yeah. the, act, the Act 3. Then she has the concert. And in the audience are the sister and the daughter Mm -hmm. looking with ugly looks on their face, scowls on their face. We've just seen the worst of this woman. And then through the power of her performance, the last shot of the film is they're smiling and bouncing along with the music. And I I don't buy a second of it. I
1: I think that this performance is following what has been up to this point the darkest chapter of her life. I mean, she's involved in this, like, settlement of, like, you know, someone that she very seriously injured. Um, You know, she has battled with substance abuse for an incredibly long time. Like, she's somewhat estranged from her daughter. And I think that what we're seeing there at the end of it is the people in her life understanding that this is all that she's ever known, and this is, like, where she can, like kind of let loose and like be who she is and like you know this is her this is her element and that we can kind of understand that even though she may have these violent outbursts and she may do this and that that ultimately like she just wants to make people happy and to bring some kind of joy into the world you know i think what this movie does that's very interesting is a place with this idea of pop stardom and like visibility and constant scrutiny and being in the public eye. We all, as people, if we are engaged in this like social media kind of landscape, we're all somewhat performative in some way or another. And by us like doing that and participating in this performative medium of Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all this stuff, trying to create this idea of who we are for other people, which ultimately is what Natalie Portman's character is trying to do that we are also at the same time putting ourselves out there uh, for scrutiny. Like people can see what the image that we're trying to present and criticize us in whatever way that they deem fit.
2: One hour later.
1: And just like goes on to praise Clint Eastwood's fucking American propaganda machine that is his directorial career and like just shits on Vox Lux and it made me so mad. Uh, The guy's name is Ben Sachs, so fuck that dude
0: well we, we leave it to carlos to uh review the reviewers no doubt david tell us uh wrap wrap this up for us and get us into this beautiful beer sorry that was a tirade
2: yeah i've lost the plot a little bit here <laughs> 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 all right i had lots of things i was gonna say at various points in there um yeah uh, it was a good movie <laughs> <laughs> I gotta regroup. Can can we just t- th- th- like a pause, Carlos? That was a ridiculously long soliloquy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't love to like you. You're a great producer. You've done wonderful stuff for us. <laughs> Holy shit! I think you're gonna want to edit that the fuck down. That, I, a, like, probably. That was almost 20 minutes. I think. Of hey, David. <laughs> David, thanks for thanks
0: for sending me a text to wake me up. <laughs>
2: I mean, honestly, I was with you through a lot of it, and then, okay.
0: Anyway, I'm sorry. No, I
2: just—it's just just that
1: with like everything that can be said about this movie, leads you to another thing about it, and it's just you, you can really just get yourself into this like tailspin the last thing i'll say scott Walker's score incredible jude law is fucking great in this movie jude law and natalie portman both act their fucking asses off throughout the entire thing i, get
2: it. I think it's a testament to how great this film is you you know <laughs> what it comes down to here is i kind of expected this was going to be the one that was going to split us more if there was going to be one of these films although i you know I'm, I'm i was surprised a little bit that joe didn't like portrait of a lady as much as i thought he might um but i, I kind of expected this one was going to be a little more challenging because it is not it does not deliver the kind of satisfying narrative arc that you're typically wanting from any film yeah Um, I think instead it chops out this huge chunk. I mean, a story about a pop star on the rise that jumps from her just at the precipice of becoming a pop star and then jumps forward to where she's actually having some kind of comeback and she's had this troubled middle period and all that and excising that and removing the middle period. It's a bold move. But to me, it pays off because it allows the film to really spend time on looking at where does a nobody become a somebody and then much later once that somebody's been to somebody for so long what does that actually do to their person who are they as a person at the end of that process and that's why i love that ending where joe says it feels a little disjointed to him um that it ends with this kind of happy i didn't take it as a fully happy note because i know how tragic of a figure she is i know what she's actually dealing with day to day but it does remind me that but the These people who are pop stars, this is their existence, right? The people who have that kind of level of fame, of course they have problems, of course they're troubled. In fact, those problems are worse in a lot of ways, at least the interpersonal problems that they have because they are simultaneously an actual person and this thing on a pedestal that nobody knows quite what to do with, and they're having to navigate that. And so, you know, like, you can't have a regular mother-daughter relationship. You can't have a regular sister-to-sister relationship. You can't have a regular relationship with your parents. None of that stands when you are that kind of thing, and it reminds you what that thing is. It's this performance persona that, you know, sweeps people up. I, I did think the music, I thought they did a pretty good job with the music, and I thought, I totally get where Carlos is coming from. That uh, you know, you can see maybe the the restraints on the budget in terms of what they were able to do to show that crowd scene and everything. But that didn't it didn't pull me out of it too much. So I really love this film. I think it's, I think it's doing something really tricky with this idea of stardom that I've seen very few films do, and I was impressed with how it pulled it off for me.
1: One thing I will say about, um, to your point about this pop star being an actual person and also being on a pedestal. I think that that idea, which is, you know, really at the base of the second half of the film where we see Natalie Portman. I think it's so expertly shown to us in a short period of time, uh, really well executed when they're at that diner and this guy comes up to her asking for a picture. She's clearly like, distraught not in a good mood you could I'm, I'm sure anybody could tell she had been crying and he's like can I get a picture and she's like no please not right now and he's like can I get a picture and she's like I'm really just trying to have you know this time with my daughter or whatever and then he persists and he like starts calling her a bitch and like you're an asshole and like whatever and she and like as soon as that scene ended and uh Celeste and her daughter walked out of that diner Kylie and I both looked at each other and we we're like But she said no, like nicely, like several times. And this fucking guy is so entitled that he thinks like, oh, yeah, she's in my restaurant. I'm the manager, the fucking big dick manager of this diner that she has to take a picture with me. Like, what a fucking asshole, you know, like I just. But if
0: but if in this 15 year period, she's become so street smart and certainly about celebrity, I would have expected her to handle that much, much better. I'm not going to say drugs. (laughs) I'm not going to say I'm not going to say Vox sucks but i'm going to say that i didn't have the experience that the two of you did have but i know that we unanimously must have had a great experience with this beer i know we did i swear to god it makes up for
1: everything that happened to us in the first half of this episode
2: <laughs> it has gone a long way to to oh, uh, so good. washing that terrible taste out of my mouth no this this is a tr- this is a treat in a can i mean i'm i'm looking at this the, the label art, everything. This is just, th- this reminds me of the heights that we've gone to with craft beer these days. Yes. That we have beers this tasty available to us um, via mail in this case. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I just, I, I'm not at all uh, sad that we put this in the second half because, by God, did this make for a fantastic closer?
1: I knew as soon as I saw this can when it arrived at my porch that i needed this in my life that i needed to drink it asap and the can art the description absolutely everything about it not only did not disappoint but might have even undersold it it might have exceeded the heights of its description and artistic uh representation
0: um it is so good so so good the brewing part, the the brewing project, Wisconsin Puff Tart XL Raspberry Guava, unanimously loved. You know, if you go back to episode, if you go back to episode eighty two, we had two Berliner Weisses. You remember that Florida Avenue Brewing Company's Rainbow Sherbet Berliner Weiss? Yes. And and then prior to that, in the same episode, the Trim Tab Paradise. Now we are on this show drinking the best sours, and I'm slowly becoming a sour convert. Although we, we know there's some bad ones out there, yeah. But we are batting a thousand over the last few episodes here on the on the show. Well, next episode, the first beer that we drink, boys, our two hundredth beer.
2: Oh shit!
0: That's so big. we're gonna have. We're gonna to have to put some thought into this episode. That's big, right? Um,
2: and and we already know what we're gonna be watching. So uh, and, and we're probably gonna have pushed this on social media already. So if you're listening to this today, uh, as the this episode drops, you may still have some time uh, to to see these. But these are South by Southwest films that are available on Amazon Prime through an agreement that they, they pulled together here in the last month when they had to cancel the South by Southwest Film Festival. Um, and, and the films that we chose to look at, because there were a few, um, were a French film, Le Choc de Futur, which is the shock of the future, uh, translated title, but I believe it's on Amazon as Le Choc de Futur, and uh, the uh, film TFW, No GF and uh we'll we'll leave it at that so so those who are listening or have followed us on social media you, you, hopefully you get a chance to look at those before they go away on may 6th
0: and you know we were going to go up to south by this year we had been asked by them to come up and look at some of these films, <laughs> and uh, that it was canceled, and you know, is one of the biggest fatalities at the beginning of coronavirus. South by Southwest was the one that made America go,
2: "What? Yeah, it was. It was yeah. one of the first. You're right. Yeah, and I mean, so
0: I'm glad that Amazon, you know, with our help put some of these on the, their platform and we'll watch them next week i'm totally on board with taking as much
1: credit for this as we
2: can of
1: our 200th beer you, you have to
0: tune in next week. this is a yeah. big episode 200th we'll
1: beer is going to be big um, hopefully you're listening to this when the episode comes out so that you have at least hopefully a few hours to get one of these films in. Um, if you haven't already seen us talk about it on social media, it's going to be a weird uh, week trying to promote this week's episode and the next week's episode at the same time so that everybody has right. time to uh, watch the films. We uh, can
0: handle it. We can handle it.
1: We can do it. If there's anything that we know, it's that we have an expert social media team at our disposal. That's right. Uh, but... You know, at the end of the day, this episode was about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, it was about Vox Lux, it was about Daddy's Juice Box, El Chingon, and Puff Tart XL, so... Have you seen these films? Have you had any of these beers? What did you think? Let us know. Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer in the Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer in the Movie TX, Beer in the is our home base. You can find a link to listen to all of our past episodes there. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us out a great deal. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to see more of in the future. Right now, uh, because of our lack of theater access, um, we are obviously hitting the themed episodes pretty heavy, which I personally am having a great time doing. Uh, really like going back to some stuff that we missed, um, maybe some, uh, holes in my cinephile viewing experience, uh, at some point we'll probably get to, there will be blood, which has been discussed quite a bit, uh, in the turn in like, you know, this two month period that we've been in. Um, but at the end of the day, I feel like, you know, um, Uh, we just want to keep putting episodes out every Wednesday so that there's some kind of normalcy and routine still in everybody's life. I know that's pretty much what every podcast says. uh, But you know, that's what we're doing. Um, It's, you know, it's been an interesting time. I cut my own hair yesterday uh, and that's what, that's what we're doing now. You know, we're cutting our own hair. We're working from home. I only have one hair. I I cut it off (laughs) yesterday too. (laughs) See, you got it so easy man I had to try to give myself a taper fade you know how hard that is (laughs) no easy task my friend Um, but this has been another episode of beer in a movie
2: they wanted a show we gave them a show